I'm Gray Almeida. Welcome to the Gray Area. I'd like you to meet my friend George. George is 39 years old. He's a husband, a father, a deputy police chief in Rentham, and is training for the 2020 Boston Marathon. He also has incurable medullary thyroid cancer. There are so many reasons why George is a beloved member of his community, but what I like most about him is that he's simply great company. He's with me today. Hi, George. Hi, Gray. So you're running the Boston Marathon. I am, yep. And how do you feel? How's training going? Training's going very well. I'm actually feeling better than I thought I would at this point. I mean, you still have those runs where it, it just it takes a lot out of you and, and you feel like you had a, a bad run, and then that lowers your confidence level in thinking, am I really going to be able to do this? But then the following week, you have a good run, and you're ready to get back into it. And you weren't always a runner. No, I wasn't. In fact, I've actually never been a long-distance runner. I would run maybe two or three miles. I'd go on a stint of running like two or three miles a few days for a couple of weeks and then fall out of it. But uh, this one I'm stuck with. And so when we started talking about uh, your training for the marathon and you explained to me that this was actually pretty new, that you started running, and it was when you started this new treatment for your medullary thyroid cancer, that you were feeling much better. Yeah, within a couple of days I started feeling yeah much better. I, I didn't realize how bad I felt until I started feeling better. And so you started waking up early in the morning and decided, I'm going to go out for a run. That's correct. It's actually August 2nd, uh, 2019. Um, I mean, I had been waking up earlier prior to that, but that was the morning I woke up and said, I'm just going to go for a run. And so how long were you going out for runs until you decided, I might be running the Boston Marathon? So I started running every morning that I woke up, or just about every morning that I woke up. So it was probably like six, six days a week, and i do a few miles. And then I just kind of kept increasing that distance. And at some point, I had the crazy idea, if I, hit thir- if I can get to 13 miles, then I'll sign up for the marathon. And so how long did it take you to hit the 13 miles? Um, I think sometime in mid-October, I hit 13 miles. And you signed up by yourself? I signed up, but it was also with a college roommate that I used to run with uh, around campus. When we used to run, this is 20 years ago, we always talked about you know, doing a marathon someday. I don't think we ever really took it seriously, but after I decided I was going to do it, I reached out to him, and he was all on board. And so you started training. No side effects with the medicine or anything? No, I haven't had any issues. Um, in fact, the, the medication I'm on, I haven't had one symptomatic side effect. It, it's just it's been great. And how did you end up getting diagnosed? So one morning when I woke up, I um, was getting dressed ready for work, putting on a shirt and tie, and as I slipped the knot up on the tie, I felt something rubbery like in the middle of my neck. I, I actually thought it was my Adam's apple at first, uh, but then as I looked closer, I realized it wasn't. I asked my wife to take a look at it, and she kind of persisted that I went to the doctor, which I did. He sent me to an ENT specialist who uh, actually sent me for imaging first, so I had an ultrasound and, and CT scans. I was slated to see the ENT doctor about a month later, but a couple of days after the imaging, he called me and said that he needed to see me in his office right away, which was never, isn't a good sign when you hear that. And so you show up? I showed up to the appointment, not really knowing what to expect, and uh, it turns out they wanted to do a fine needle biopsy, which is when they stick a small needle into the thyroid tissue, you know, into the a nodule, which is a horrible experience, especially when you're not prepared for it. But um, that was done, and then after, um, after that, I was all set to go, and the doctor looked at me and said, um, in his experience, this was going to come back as thyroid cancer. I remember thinking at the time, like, 
why would you say something like that when it hadn't even gone out to pe- you know, the pathology report hasn't come back yet or anything? But in hindsight, I'm kind of glad that he said it, it allowed me to prepare for it. I was I was in graduate school, so I had access to the university library. So I started researching you know thyroid cancer and realized that 85 percent of all thyroid cancers are thereabouts is papillary. Um, so I was going with the odds that I had papillary thyroid cancer. And so what happened when you went back and you actually got the news that it wasn't? So I had done all my research uh, on papillary. My wife and I, we went to the appointment where the pathology report came back. And I asked him, was it what it, he it suspected? And uh, he said it was, and that it was thyroid cancer. We explained there's four types of thyroid cancers, papillary, follicular, medullary, and anaplastic. Um, and he said that I actually had medullary thyroid cancer, which is one of the rare forms of it. At that point, I didn't really know what to say. I mean, first being diagnosed with cancer is, is overwhelming enough, but then having no idea about medullary, because all my research was in papillary, I always like to prepare for things, you know, so being completely unprepared, um, it, it was very difficult. Yeah. So you, uh, what was the treatment? What what did you have to do? So at that point, I had to have surgery. I had to take the thyroid out. And because it's medullary thyroid cancer, it's not a typical surgery, like a, if it was papillary thyroid cancer, they do a, usually a bilateral neck dissection where they take out the thyroid as well as many um, lymph nodes. So I wanted to make sure I went to somewhere that was, uh, had a surgeon that had a lot of experience with medullary thyroid cancer, which pointed me to Boston because, you know, Boston's the, the hub for, you know, medical research. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was referred to a doctor in Boston. I made the appointment and uh, went to see him. Would there be a way that they could do surgery and just remove the entire cancer and then you would be cancer free? That was my hope. Obviously, when you learn you have cancer inside, you just, you just want it out. Like I just wanted it all out. They, they do a very um, comprehensive imaging before the surgery so they can map out your whole lymph node system um, and they can see which ones are suspicious and, and whatnot. So after the surgery, he explained that tumors, the nodules didn't, didn't they were very sticky, so they didn't come off very easily. So there's some that was stuck around my carotid artery. There's some that was attached to my, to my nerve um, that controls your left arm. And the surgeon didn't want to be too aggressive because if, if you snap that nerve, then I'd be you know, paralyzed in my, in my left arm. As well as if he had a clamp to carotid artery, I could have a stroke. And I think he was he was looking at me as being a 35-year-old guy with three young kids. So it was almost like a, if he was too aggressive, then he didn't want to give me some you know morbid side effects affect me down the road. I also think he saw treatment, better treatment options on the horizon as well. So you had not started yet the current drug treatment that you're on right now. That's correct. So this, this would have been April, actually April 19, 2016, I had the surgery. And so after that, were you feeling much better? I was, obviously. There's two more markers in your blood. One is called calcitonin, the other is called CEA, and that measures how much disease is in your body. Typically, you want a large drop in that after your surgery. Fortunately, after my surgery, my numbers didn't drop that much, which was concerning. But I also had to remember that they left residual disease you know, in, inside me. So that made me a candidate for radiation. And then I was stable for about a year. And then that, that calcitonin, that tumor marker started going up again, which warrants imaging. And then it showed a, um, a metastasis in my T12 of my spine. So that put me back on the radiation table. Were you able to work throughout this whole time? I was. It was about five months that I couldn't work from when the surgery occurred to after the radiation. So it was about from April until September is when I started back to work. And that's when the community started to suddenly hearing news of what was going on. Yeah, pretty much immediately after I was diagnosed, uh, my wife and I talked about whether we wanted to keep it private or make it public. And I'm not so much as a private guy. I just don't put myself out there, so to say. But, um, you know, we decided that we needed, we needed some support. 
for sure. Yeah, so we needed the help. So um, it went public, and and I just I, I still well up thinking about the the overwhelming support from the community and in far beyond that just that people who didn't even know me but just reached out to help my, my family and I. Well, you had literally gone from the person who had taken care of your community as a police officer in Rentham, and then the you needed the community's help. Yeah, and, and I never thought about that that way until you mentioned that to me. Um, but that definitely has some sweetness when, when you explain it like that. Sure. So a couple years go by, you're feeling okay. That's when you and I actually met over a year ago on the soccer field. That's correct, yeah. You seemed totally fine, but you were not feeling too good. So it was actually pretty much shortly after the, the soccer season in which we coached that uh, my numbers started accelerating rapidly. Now, there's a thing called doubling time, and that's when you're, there's tumor markers that I discussed, the calcitonin and the CEA, when it takes to double up. So if your number is like 1,000, how long does it take to become 2,000? Mm-hmm. So the standard is if it takes two years, that's a pretty good prognosis. If it's six months, then it's usually not. When doing the math, mine was accelerating in about three months doubling time. Um, which, which is not good, and they kind of consider that like an accelerated phase. So again, that warrants imaging. So I had imaging, and that showed um, that I had some tumors metastasized to my lower spine, my hips, and uh, and liver. But you had said that in a certain way, that was good news for you because it meant that you finally qualified for this experimental drug. So, so the fact that it was showed up in my liver, yeah, is is, is bad as that sounds. It was good because that actually qualified me for the for the trials. In order to be qualified for the trial, they want to have a measurable disease or, you know, progressive. So by having those tumors in my liver, they're actually able to measure it versus bone metastasis, they can't measure the same way. So you started the new drug. In March of 2019. And you start feeling good and you start running. I start feeling good, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was a lag time there, but it really took me a while to, I mean, I I lost quite a bit of weight. I was down to about 150 pounds. So it it took me a while to kind of build myself back up to, to even to get to the fact of running. And can you tell us about your experience of going to Eli Lilly, the pharmaceutical company that makes this drug? Because I love this story of yeah. how you went out there. So there's a Facebook group for people with majority thyroid cancer or their caregivers. And someone from that group reached out to me and said that uh, they were calling around the, the pharmaceutical companies that have made treatments for majority thyroid cancer and asked if I wanted to go to represent uh, the group you know, as majority thyroid cancer. So, of course, I said yes. So I went out to Indiana, where um, Indianapolis, where uh, Eli Lilly is, and um, I really didn't know what to expect. I know they wanted to hear my story. So ironically, I, I saw my doctor, my oncologist, the week before, and I was telling her about it. And she said, well, you know what? I'm going to be there, too, because I'm a keynote speaker. So it was really cool to just be able to hang out with her, you know, outside the, 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 the hospital room or the medical yeah. room, too. So she speaks, and I'm, I'm looking, and there's a stage up there with two chairs, and I felt like it was like an Oprah scene or something. <laughs> So um, one of the women, uh, Monique, she, she was the moderator, so she called me up there, and I sat in the chair and told my story. And it was in, a, in an auditorium, and there was about 75 people present, and I later learned that they were actually recording it, and there was about 200 people watching online. But I really thought that, you know, I'd look out into the audience, and I'd see people, like, on their cell phones or just disinterested, you know, distracted or whatever. And every time I looked out, all eyes were on me. And it, 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 was, it was absolutely amazing. And then... After my, you know, after I finished up and told my story, so many people came up to me and shook my hand, or if I put my hand to shake them, they actually gave me a hug, and they just said how much it meant to meet someone who is just doing so well with the drug that they're working on. It, it was an amazing experience. I feel like I'm still on a high from it, you know. 
Do you think you'll ever go back to do a follow-up type of speech maybe with them or like a keynote speaker yeah. event? I mean, I hope so. They actually were going to try and allow me or set up a meet with the person who actually, the chemist who actually created the drug itself, the drug compound itself. And I haven't heard back. I will follow up and reach out because I feel like that would be awesome to meet that person. Oh, too. yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so back to the marathon. So you are running for charity. Yes. All my treatments have been at Mass General Hospital, and uh, I thought, what better way to give back than to run for Mass General Hospital, and I'll be running for the uh, pediatric cancer research team. And how were you able to get a spot on the team? So I had to apply, and obviously they have a lot of applications for that, and they have a couple of other teams. I think they only accept 100 for the pediatric. And it's probably because, like I said, I'm a preparer, so I probably prepared too early. So I submitted the application like the day that they were allowing applications in. But I was picked for the pediatric cancer. I'm very happy that that the cause I'm running for. And how are you doing with your fundraising efforts? Good, very well. So it's just um, a go a charity GoFundMe that is too long of an address to. to I can spell add out. it onto okay. the or link. If, or if people just want a Facebook friend request me, and they can get it off my Facebook too. Um, I'm, I'm always accepting friends. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, fundraising is going, is going very well. That's awesome. Do you know what number you, you have yet? I don't. So we're going to register for bibs in two days. And we'll be able to track you as you're running it? Yeah, I don't know if I, don't know if I want people to see how slow I'm running. But uh, <laughs> yeah, We're going to yeah. be on the sideline watching. I, I will get that bib number out there so you can follow me. And uh, after, the, after the race, what's next? I, I don't really know. Um, I don't know. One thing that sticks out to me since we've gotten to know each other is how positive you are on everything in life. Have you always been this way, or has your outlook on life changed since you've been diagnosed with cancer? So I've always been more of a positive person. And when I was first diagnosed, I remember everyone telling me, stay positive, stay positive. And at times I would feel down. I don't want to say depressed, but I'd feel down. And I'd, I would feel guilty because people because I wasn't feeling positive, you know. And, and one thing I realized that when you're diagnosed with, with any disease or going through any type of grief, you, you need to feel all the emotions. You, you have to feel everything, and you can't suppress anything. Even if it is you, you're a little blue, um, you have to still be able to feel that um, in order really to get out of it. Or if I could wave some magic wand and go back to never being diagnosed but living before I was diagnosed to being diagnosed but being able to appreciate life the way I do now, I don't know what I would do because I am so grateful and, and every day I count my blessings for everything that I have in life now and the way, the way I appreciate life, the way I look at life now. But then again, I still have an incurable cancer that could ultimately, I, I could ultimately die from, you know? So it's a, it's a tough struggle to decide on what, but I tend to lean towards appreciating life. Do you talk about all of this with your children? My oldest is eight, so she is starting to understand a little bit. But my youngest is obviously 18 months, so he doesn't understand. But when I was first diagnosed, my oldest was, was five at the time. And uh, the easiest way we found to discuss, because we don't want to hide it from them. Mm -hmm. We want to be as transparent and open as possible. But the easiest way to explain it to them was that I had a bad butterfly in my throat that was pooping bad things. And it was for a couple of reasons. One is because the thyroid is represented by a butterfly. Yeah, it's um, great. So, but and, and also, it allowed them to understand why I was having surgery to take a butterfly out. And then that also there was some stuff that was still left in me. So it was, it was funny because maybe a couple of months ago, I said something to my oldest about it. And she's like, Dad, you, you didn't really have a butterfly in your neck, did you? I'm like, no, I didn't. So I explained a little bit more to her um, so she kind of understood a little bit better. And how is your wife doing? She is amazing. Like She's just so supportive in, in every way. Like When I decided that I wanted to run the marathon, it wasn't a my decision. It was a family decision because it is a big commitment. It's not just the race day. It's, it's 
the trainings, the meetings, you know, everything before the long runs on Saturdays. So, you know, I asked her if, if it's something that she would support. And of course she did. She, she, she's just been so supportive through, through everything. And so you are still working full time? Yeah, it's still full time. Uh, with the Rentham Police Department. And I had asked you the question, if you could be actually anywhere doing anything in the world without any financial responsibility, where would you be? I don't think I'd really go anywhere. Maybe somewhere warmer. But uh, other than that, um, I just, I love my life. Well, thank you so much, George, and good luck on the marathon. Thank you, Gray.